Welcome. Welcome to our very last Credo Deep Dive. Uh, it's, it's amazing. You guys have made it all the way to the end. Um, and just as a reward, we have figured out the date of Jesus' return, so we will be sharing that with you uh, tonight. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, but Credo Deep Dive tonight, we were joking a little bit. I was driving in here, and I was going, it's kind of funny to call this a deep dive into eschatology in, in an hour and 15 minutes. We're, we're going to get as deep as we can. Uh, we're going to hit some of the main points uh, as, as we come into this. Um, but on our panel uh, today, we've got Alex Seekins, uh, David Stockton, and Daniel Riccio who is the, the, real, the real expert up here, if we're all being honest. He, uh, yeah. So we are going to dive into eschatology a little bit tonight um, and uh, hopefully answer all your questions that you've ever had about eschatology. <laughs> um, but we're going to start with something really important. Um, and as we've been going through this Credo series, everything that we've been doing, we've been trying to find the boundary conditions of our faith. We've been going, okay, what are the important things that we really need to have clarity on when it comes to our theology? And so my first question to this panel is, does eschatology matter? Does what we believe about eschatology matter in the life of a believer? And I'll start with Daniel Riccio. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, and ultimately, the reason eschatology matters is what you believe out about the future completely shapes who you are today. And so having a clear picture of the right things, knowing that there's things that, are, you know, that here's the things I'm certain about, here's the things I'm less certain about, but the things I'm certain about, those are the ones that are going to shape me. Yeah, I mean, on Sunday, obviously, that was the beginning of my message was trying to give us a little context for that. And Jesus spent... Check, check. There we go. Um, yeah, in the message on Sunday, I was, I was mentioning just Jesus. It, it was really important to Jesus. It's really important to um, his apostles, and uh, the New Testament's full of it. Um, so I think that is, is enough for me to think, yeah, we should really be paying attention to this. Yeah, yeah. Alec, concur. I, I mean, I don't have much to add, but uh, I, I, do think it, I do think eschatology is important for today and the way we're living and what we're looking forward to. I mean, it's fundamental to, to what we're doing and following Jesus. Really? Come yeah. on. I think we got to turn it up maybe. Are we? Yeah. Oh, there it is. I'm on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important. Fundamental to what we believe is hope. Um, and so having some concept of, of what, is, what is that hope uh, is, is pretty important. And then everything they said. So if es eschatology is important, uh, what are the most important aspects of eschatology? And we were talking about it a little bit before going, okay, there are so many different things. And the, we, were, we were joking, when you, when you give a sermon and you mention anything about eschatology, you're going to get some people that are pretty hot under the collar about it. They get very opinionated about it. Looking at all the different aspects from your opinion, what do you guys see as the most important aspects of eschatology? Well, I think, I think we all answered pretty safe on the first question because we didn't want to answer this next question that you just answered. But um, yeah, I, I, think, I think eschatology is very important. Um, I think there are, there are obviously essentials with, uh, to our faith within the 
con uh, the concept of eschatology, and that's where the creed's nice because, you know, the creed boils it all down into, you know, a few phrases, but in, in particular the last two, um, resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And so I think that's, that's part of the work of eschatology is trying to dig into the endless, um, almost unanswerable questions of what's next for um, for, for believers, what's next for non-believers, what's, what's next for creation, um, because there's this big mystery that, that the world has always had. And we, even with all of our new technologies and all these things, still, we don't know what's on that other side after death. So I think, I think, I think the question is so good, diving into what, um, what is eschatology informing us that is important to hang on to and what might be more non-essentials, and I'll just leave it at that so you guys can go from there. Yeah, if I was going to narrow it <clears throat> down to one thing, it would be from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul basically says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless. You're still dead in your sins, and there is no hope in, in a nutshell. And it's that Jesus raised from the dead, and that's why, you know, in the Credo series, um, resurrection of the dead from the Apostles' Creed, it's Jesus being raised as a first fruit, here's a little sample of what's to come, um, that he's the example, um, the proof of what's going to happen in the end, that we're, we will all be raised um, in him. And so um, the most important thing is Jesus is raised and that we have confidence that he's going to raise us. Yeah, I mean, uh, the creed, really, it, it's pretty useful. There's a reason we've been saying it for a couple thousand years, you know. Um, and so I think that the reality that Jesus is returning to judge the quick and the dead, which is great news for the slow people. Um, just kidding. Huh? The living and the dead. Uh, a little more vernacular. Um, but Jesus is coming. Yeah, I know all those fast people, they're getting judged. Jesus is coming back to judge uh, the living and the dead. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we believe in the resurrection of the body, and David did a good, good job on Sunday really saying, when we say that, that's, that's like, like a double whammy, because we mean we believe in Jesus' resurrection, um, but a lot of believers somehow miss out on the fact that we actually literally believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that everyone will be resurrected um, to be judged by the Lord at some point in time. Um, and we believe in life everlasting. And I think we, uh, oftentimes when we talk about eschatology uh, believers, we spend a lot of time splitting hairs and kind of pick, pick, pick in and saying, well, this denomination believes that, and this denomination believes that. And that's worth getting into. I think it's, if anything, it's worth uh, being aware of what other traditions believe uh, because, because of the sense of like, I, I don't know who's right, you know, and we're dealing with some fuzzy things here, if we're honest, and some things that are less fuzzy, but some that are fuzzy. Um, so I think it's, it's valuable, valuable to have those conversations internally within the church. But I think it's also really helpful to think of this with the lens that we've been looking at the Credo series of saying, well, what, what are the boundary markers? Uh, what are the things that differentiate church from not church in this regard? And, 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 and what is that line there? And I think when we say to people who are not believers, I believe in the resurrection of the body. You don't believe that. I really believe that. I'm not kidding when I say that I believe that Jesus raised from the dead, and I believe that you and me and everyone will raise from the dead, and I believe that there is this thing called life everlasting, 
Um, and, and not everybody believes that, and that's okay that you don't, but I just wanna make this clear. I actually believe this. This isn't a set of morals. This isn't a set of ethics. This isn't just the way I think that, you know, it would be best to live life, although I agree that the Christian worldview and the Bible puts forward some really great morals and ethics and a wonderful and the best way to live life. I also actually believe that, you know, Jesus is gonna come and judge us and the bodies are gonna be raised and his body was raised and, and we're coming, you know, yeah. I think, back to life I think uh, on, on that, like what's, what is essential, you know, if we're, what, what is the most important things to focus on? Obviously, Dan's right, he's always right. Um, but that resurrection is what really kind of opened up the entire, you know, discussion of what's next. Um, but in there, I, I, think, I think there are some words that, that we have a lot of unity on throughout the millennia of the church. And there are words that we don't have as much unity on. And, and I think that might be a, a pretty good divider right there. So like the return of Christ, everyone's in. Like everyone's like, yeah, Jesus is returning. Um, new heaven and new earth. Yes, there's going to be some sort of new reality, renewed new reality of, of what's to come. Um, yeah, the, the, the ascension of Christ. I mean, that's pretty simple right there. The, the Judgment. Yeah. The, well, the descended into hell is a, it, or, or whatever, descended to the dead. Yeah. That one's more uncomfortable, but I think there's still consistency throughout the two millennia of the church yeah. that, yeah, that, that was a reality. There's verses to back that up, and that's what happened in that time. So, and I on that timeline that I used on Sunday, I tried to, like, put some of those, like, boundary markers or some of those really kind of essential moments that there's a lot of unity on. And then on that timeline, though, there's a lot of room for raptures and millennials and tribulations and, you know, all these different antichrists and all, all these type of, um, that these actually type was of things. incredibly helpful. I saw that on Sunday. I was like, oh yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So all those other words that there, there is a little bit more division on, um, I think I didn't put on there, not just because I'm trying to like not stir the pot or create division. I didn't want anyone you know, running at the stage or something because they're so <laughs> mad about something. But I, I did have conversations. Like I said, I interviewed a lot of people and, and on, on this, there was, there was maybe people didn't know much about it, but there was not really much division. But when we got into words like rapture, antichrist, all these it's like, things. like, where's the word rapture? There was, there, a, there was a lot more fire. You know, there was a lot more fire um, from some of that. So that was fun. Yeah. I think this is a, a great time to get into the nuts and bolts then. Uh, people were asking us, and we get this, I actually get this probably every year, that uh, we, multiple times a year whenever we teach Explore. Are you amillennial, dispensationalist? Are you premillennial? You know, like where are you... Where do you lie, you know, lie in terms of the theology of that? Um, Daniel, why don't I go to you and just unpacking a little bit, what do those phrases mean just in a nutshell for everybody to, to kind of grasp it? So in terms of the millennium, you know, that appears towards the end of Revelation, I think Revelation chapter 19, uh, and it talks about a thousand year period of reigning on the earth. And, you know, different people throughout time have read that, you know, is is there the return of Christ um, and then the millennium, or does the millennium happen uh, and, and then Christ returns, uh, or is the millennium not something, you know, a millennium would be like, uh, it's just a passage and we don't have to worry about it. And 
um, which may sound, yeah. yeah, and and I, you know, we talked about it beforehand, and I said, I'm a pan-millennial. Um, in the end, it'll all pan out. Um, so, but, and, you know, I actually said that with some seriousness, too, because, you know, it appeared, the only verse in the Bible appears in the book that's highly metaphorical, lots of picture language, and one way to look at it would be, all right, here's a picture of Satan being locked up in the pit for a thousand years, and you know, Jesus ruling on earth. Um, and then at the end of the thousand years, Satan comes out and starts doing the very thing he was always been doing. And if you wanted to say evil is not rehabilitatable, um, in another, if it's in an epistle, you say evil's not rehabilitatable. But if you're in the picture language of Revelation, you demonstrate that evil is not rehabilitatable and that after you lock it up for a thousand years, what is evil after a thousand years locked up? It's still evil. This is not something we're going to rehab. It's something ultimately that Jesus is going to destroy. And so if you, you know, for me, I, I get why people situate things on a, on a timeline. They, they're wanting to take seriously Scripture and try and give their best answer to it. And I've kind of been happy to not take a position too hard on that. David, you want to add anything to that? Well, I, I, a, a lady came up and asked me that exact question after my message, and uh, I just took off running as fast as I No, I didn't. <laughs> Um, I, I, I actually said that I've, I've appreciated some, some points of emphasis from, from both camps and, you know, which one's more biblical, that's a tough, that's a tough, um, it's a tough way to go because they both use Bible verses to support their different, um, stances. But, um, the, the amillennial, I think what I've received from that camp is much more, hey, you know, we're not just looking for Jesus to come and just take us away to some fairy tale place and to, and to hell with the world, literally, um, with, with the creation, but that God is, he, he, his creation, he's not done with. And so whatever has been tainted in his creation, including heaven and earth and us, he, he's wanting to bring about a renewal of that. So new heaven and new earth is not, this one's just kind of off burning in the distance and then there's this new one he made but it's actually bringing a, a renewal to this place. And so then that forms us as believers. So what, what are we doing to usher in or even hasten the day of that? Um, and, then, and then on the other side, more the premillennial, which is where the camp of like pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, tribulation would be. Um, I think they just, I, I just, I love the, the living in light of the imminent return of Christ. Like at any minute, Jesus could return. Because Jesus, when he gives us all of that discourse, definitely leaves them with that sensation. Um, when Jesus ascended, the, the disciples are sitting there watching him go up, and the angel says to them, hey, get to work, because any, you know, he's going to return in like fashion. And you read through the New Testament, it definitely seems like all of those New Testament writers really thought that it was in their lifetime, most likely, that the return of Christ would come. So I just think... Obviously, they were wrong, <laughs> um, but I think they were right in the way that they lived because of that. So I, 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 I don't know. I, I can't say one or the other. I think at one point I was going to a church that was, I mean, the pastor literally said, I'm so, I'm so pre-trib, I won't eat post-toasties. I remember him saying that one time, and I was like, okay. And, and so like I, I was there in that camp for a long time, and and then going to seminary and, and really trying to find, you know, s real substantial within church history as well as the scriptures. 
I've kind of, for me, put some of those things maybe on a, on a, on a lesser essential level and tried to really focus in my teachings to really focus on what is clear and consistent throughout. Um, but I, lo I, love, I love diving into all that stuff, and I hope the rapture is true. It would be awesome. <laughs> I think just one of the things along those lines is I have people very close in my life that would disagree on different things about end times and... Um, and just one of the things that I always want my attitude to be is they're taking a hard position because they're taking scripture very seriously. And I want to honor that about someone else that might have a different position that I do, but they're going, I'm planning myself in the word of God and my best understanding of it. And there's a lot to honor in that and partner with, as opposed to let's draw up dividing lines and split each other. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the rapture. Um, no, I, I did. I was <laughs> just trying did. to pass it. Everyone's pointing at each other. Um, just for anybody who's not familiar with rapture, what are the kind of two different maybe uh, positions you would take on it? I'm just going to keep going to Daniel because I feel like he's the best Good place plan. to start with. So, you know, from a historical standpoint, rapture as a theology gets loudest or, or starts to really take shape and become a popular thing in the 19th century. Uh, and it comes from uh, John Darby and, um, uh, what's the Bible, the Thompson chain reference? I'm uh, sorry. We're not going to be able to help you. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. But uh, I'll think of it in a second. But yeah. Um, and basically, it becomes this system for um, looking at how to read scriptures, um, and it really, I mean, the one scripture that it really starts from would be 1 Corinthians 4, um, kind of the second half of the chapter, talking about, you know, the, the trumpet will sound, um, the dead will rise, um, we will meet Jesus in the air, and then always be with the Lord, and seeing that as a going away out, um, caught up, yeah, is, is the thing that shapes that, and and what you end up doing is it, it is a system. So it's kind of you go, all right, here's the 70 weeks of seven described in, you know, Daniel chapter nine. And in verse 26, there's a last seven left and God calls a timeout um, basically at the death of Jesus. And then you go to first Corinthians or sorry, first Thessalonians four, seven. Um, and then you go to first Corinthians chapter 15 and pick up some verses there. Then you go to Matthew 24. Then you go back to Daniel 27, Daniel nine twenty seven where time in is called and you get a tribulation and um, you kind of, it, it ends up being this back and forth and it's a way that actually ends up being coherent and piecing together a possible description of how things happen. Um, I remember the first time it was um, at the old campus, someone was talking to me and they said, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. And I was like, what do you mean it's not in the Bible? Who are you? And you're crazy. And um, Technically, it actually is. It's, I mean, the Greek word for it is harpazo. Um, the Latin word would be rapturus or something like that. I don't speak Greek, it's Latin. Um, but um, it's a way of saying snatched up and taken quickly. The challenge with it is like if you look in Matthew 24, the people who are snatched up are the evil ones taken away like in a flood. So it's a good thing to be left behind. So there's like, just as a way of saying there's challenges to it, one is looking at a secret return of Jesus to pull the church out, then a tribulation comes in, and then Jesus returns. That would kind of be, in a nutshell, the rapture. Um, the non-rapture would be the return of Jesus and the end of all things. Yeah, and it's interesting because that would inform how you would live, right, a little yes. bit. If you go, hey, the world is just, it's, everything's going to 
going to hell anyway. Hopefully we just get pulled out of here before things get really bad. And I think at the end of the day, and I know I'm not supposed to answer any questions, but I'll, I'll break my rule. Um, I, I, I do think that um, we were talking about this before. When Jesus came the first time, there was a ton of scripture that would inform what you were expecting from the Messiah to show up. So Jesus was fulfilling a lot of prophecy, um, but yet there were a lot of people that were still deceived or didn't think that he was fulfilling that prophecy because he was fulfilling things in scripture that people weren't really looking at until after Jesus came and then they all said, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So if Jesus surprised everybody the first time he came, he'll probably surprise everybody the, the second time he comes. And so you look at these things, you go, okay, I think I've got my head wrapped around it. But the only thing I can guarantee is it's going to look different than we all think. As, as smart as we are and as much as we study the Bible, we will all be a bit surprised when it comes. So. I, I think to that point, you know, uh, oftentimes what conversations along these lines turn into is conversations of what to practically do. And I think that's, that's a really wise place to be landing here because, uh, you know, we have a tendency as people to pick our camps and stick with it. Um, but you, you could almost find like, like a parallel in like the cutting edge physics world, right? Where they're like trying to figure out the stuff that they don't understand. And so you have this camp for, you know, dark matter and this camp for, you know, multiple universes and this camp for, you know, whatever. And they're saying, really, we don't know but we're coming up with this complex algorithm or complex, you know, math equation or whatever that we're hoping will, you know, bring the whole universe into, in, in, into alignment or whatever. And they're just saying, we're going to pick this camp and we're going to use this. We're going to use this, uh, this equation because it, it seems to be practical. And eventually, probably, someone will figure out that it's right or that it's wrong. But for the mean, in the meantime, it solves a number of the issues that we see in the universe and in physics. And, and so all that to say, I think when it comes to eschatology, a similar approach could be helpful to say, look, there are a lot of people different, saying different things and splitting hairs differently. Maybe rather than, than you know, being willing to die on the hill of this particular camp, when, when if I'm honest, it's not super clear, maybe I would do well to study all of them. Um, and again, to study the things that are clear and to know for sure what that says, but then to say, well, I, I think this, but a bunch of people think this, and then really to come out uh, with what do I do with this, you know? And so, like, I think my dad often says, um, you know, I, I pray that the Lord comes tomorrow and I live uh, assuming he won't come until after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having a practical, functional way to interact with these things and um, and, and make sure that they're leading us towards right living and righteous living and holy living and pursuing the Lord and evangelism and these things. I think, I think after this last pre preparing for the message, so being steeped once again in a lot of these, these scriptures and thoughts, um, this, it's interesting because the sense that, and I, this didn't make it in the message or whatever, but uh, I, I'm still Cutting processing Cutting room floor, it. yeah. yeah. Stuff I'm still stomach. processing it myself. Um, but the, but the sense reading Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus is basically answering the question, what will the sign of the end of the age be? His disciples are asking that. And then reading, you know, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 about the man of lawlessness. And Paul's trying to help the, the church in Thessalonians not be ignorant about these things. Like, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. He's like, oh, no, <laughs> we're so ignorant about these things. Um, and then, and then even, you know, Revelation um, as a book and different things like, 
the one thing that I think I would feel comfortable putting on that timeline, which I didn't, because I'm still processing, um, is, is actually tri tribulation, as far as that word. Now, you know, a seven-year period, obviously, in Daniel, the book, not the man. Um, in Daniel and Revelation, there are these, these allusions to a, a seven-year reality, which could be figurative, could be reality, but... Um, but as far as, it, it really does seem like the message that those guys were trying to give to the people they were talking to is one of the things you, you will see is, 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 a, is a time of trouble unlike anything that's been seen before. And that there are these, gro these, gro these groanings, these labor pains, but they will eventually get to a place where they're not happening every once in a while, they're just happening. You know, it's just like on. It's not like a rest and then another one. It's just on. And, and so like that, I feel pretty comfortable that that's, that's something that will be a sign of the end of the age. Um, and uh, sorry, sorry, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the worst yeah. news there is. Um, one, it's the uh, uh, Schofield Bible. <laughs> he found it. Took, found took me it. a minute. But just as we're talking about all of it, you know, in terms of um, looking at resurrection of the dead, I still think is sort of the driving thing in talking about, you know, resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. And, you know, one thing is systems that split it up and they can affect how you live. But there's, a, um, I think, one of the pictures for resurrection of the dead. Um, there's not a lot of verses that talk about resurrection of, of the dead in the Old Testament. It's definitely there. I mean, Isaiah 26, 19, Daniel 12, 1. Ezekiel 37, like all of those have references to resurrection of the dead. But there's this other thing where it's like God has promised so much in the Old Testament that has not happened. And we have an expectation that's still really great. Um, we sing a song about all the promises are yes and amen. It's a way of saying all the promises are affirmed in Jesus. They're not yet fulfilled. It's saying the very things that God has promised from the beginning, he's going to make good on. And the way, like if you read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, and they're facing the fire if they won't bow down to the king, and they tell the king, know this king, God can save us, he will save us, and if he doesn't save us. And you kind of go, well, that's sort of a contradiction there. He will, and if he doesn't. And what you kind of see is an expectation that God's promises are so big that he, if he has to raise the dead to justify, then that's what he's going to do. And there's this expectation of God is going to set the world right by raising the dead. And that's what we see in Jesus as a first fruit, knowing that he's eventually going to do that for all. And even within Judaism, you see a split between the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. These were the aristocrats, the priests, the ruling class. They were happy with this life the way it was. For people who are going through life the hard way and the world is not such a friendly place, either to your faith, to how you live, or things like that, the resurrection of the dead becomes the cure for everything. And just like the, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, you start to live differently. They were playing with house money. They were saying, we don't care what you do to us. We're going to live this way. And so that's just a little sample of why what we believe about the future shapes how we live today. That's good. That's good. Tribulation, just mentioned that. None of these things we talked about before. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take a, take a left turn here. Um, tribulation, you talked about that. I do find it interesting, you know, in Matthew 24, when, when, 
when Jesus, they said, hey, what are the sign, signs of the end of the age? He doesn't go, I'm not going to tell you. That's not important. He goes on a list of things. He starts to say, hey, you know, verses that I find very interesting, lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold and wars and rumors of wars. Um, but there's a, there's a train of thought that we won't go through the tribulation. Um, is that something that in you guys, in your study, is that something that you feel like, yeah, that seems like we are going to avoid that or no? Um, <laughs> Daniel. I have a couple thoughts. I mean, a seven-year tribulation period um, that's as specific as it gets played out in certain theologies is really not as explicit as it is. Um, it, it does come strongly from Daniel chapter 9, talking about the 77s and, um, and some of the descriptions about it. So it's not like it's made up out of thin air, but to put a seven-year period on a timeline is a little bit more subjective. Um, the reality is, I mean, First uh, Timothy or Second Timothy talks about um, arm yourselves with this attitude. Those who want to live a righteous Christ life in Christ will suffer. Um, so, like, in terms of tribulation, we should expect that in our life. Um, and it is something that um, even there were certain missionary groups that got kicked out of, I think it was China, and there were groups that went under horrific you know, persecution. And then when the Christians came back, they were kind of like, well, we thought you got raptured out of here and we missed it and everything else. And look at the horrible tribulation we suffered and we thought we missed it. And so I, I think it would be um, not good to most of history to be like, no, Christians are going to miss the tribulation because there's lots of Christians that have gone through tribulation. Um, the other thought is in Matthew 24, there's actually two questions in the Matthew version that the disciples ask. Um, you know, it starts with, look at these big, beautiful stones, one on top of another. And Jesus says, I, you know, basically not one will be left standing on top of the other. And they say, when will this happen? And what will be the signs of the end of the times? And so you can actually see Jesus's answer splits into two because he describes, uh, you know, basically the, the destruction of Jerusalem and, you know, earthquakes, famines, all things that did happen before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. But then, and he's saying, you know, flee, pray, it doesn't happen in the winter. It's like all the instructions of how to avoid that. But if it's, this is the end of the times, there's nowhere you can go to avoid that. And that would be like the second half of his question. So it, it kind of splits into two in Matthew and you sort of get two different realities being talked about that it does concern the end of everything. And there is a specific event in history, the destruction of the temple um, that was also in view. I'm gonna shift gears. Um, I read a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn and I don't know if anybody has read that, but I feel like that for me was super formative in understanding uh, not so much end time theology, but the reality of heaven and hell and some things that we might be surprised about with the reality of heaven. Um, but one of the things in there, and this is, a, this is a question that as soon as you ask this question, it, it can feel, for people who are not familiar with this, it could feel wrong to ask even this question. But do believers go through a judgment on the day, when the Bible says the day? On that day, do believers go through a judgment? <laughs> going with, going, I mean, it, what you just asked, it's funny, was in my mind after he was talking. So it's, I, I think when, when it comes to tribulation and when it comes to those type of things, I, I mean, what Dan was saying has so much value. But I also, I mean, there's a verse in the Bible that says that, that, that we are not appointed unto wrath. And so there's this idea within 
what I've heard from probably a pre-millennial or pre-trib or, or whatever camp, um, they're really they're just this focus that, that the, the words of prophecy, the words of, that speak towards end times and last things, um, First, First Thessalonians 4 actually says, comfort one another with these words. And, and so I think there really does need to be this understanding that, um, yes, there, yes, there is tribulation promised to believers in Christ, both in this life and what seems like in the end of the age. Uh, yes, there is a judgment that comes, I believe, both to believers and non-believers. It's a completely different judgment, but, but there is judgment as well. Um, but but, this, but the, well, all of these things are supposed to comfort us. And the reality is because, because Jesus took the wrath of the Father for all sin. So whatever happens in a tribulation, whatever happens in a, in a end times sign of the age, trouble, whatever happens in a judgment, the one thing that's so wonderful for us who are followers of Christ is we don't get a drop of the, of the wrath of God. It's not, it, none of it. So you can just take... And there's, God's, God's full of wrath. I mean, the Bible is very clear about that. God is full of wrath towards sin. And, and, and those who reject his son will have to endure his wrath, just like his son endured his wrath on, on our behalf. So, I mean, again, that's pretty intense to think of God that way. But, but, um, but for believers, that's the one thing. Like, we can, we can comfort one another. We can, we can be encouraged because... We can just eliminate that whole reality. There will be no drop at all. We won't even get a splash of any of God's wrath at all. And that, that's, that's, that should be a massive comfort to us because that is not the promise for those who are not in Christ. They will receive the wrath of God. Um, so, and, and just on that too, like in the Bible you have different things. You have Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego actually went into the fire but they didn't feel any flame. In, in, when, the, when the wrath of God was poured out on the Egyptians, over in the Israelite camp, they didn't have any of those plagues. So, so there's that reality, but they still had to go through it, so to speak, but then they were spared from it. But then you have stories where, you know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, where the wrath came, but Lot the righteous was pulled out before that. So, I mean, that's where I think, that's where there's some play in a lot of these things. But the one thing that we know as believers is Christ took the wrath for us. Yeah. So we'll never have to face that, no matter what the judgment. So follow-up question. You said there's two judgments. What are those two different judgments then? What does that look like? Me? Yes, David. Um, well, the, the way that I've, I've heard them phrased is one would be a bema seat judgment, and there's some meaning behind those words, and then there's the great white throne judgment. Um, and both of these come from different passages of Scripture. Um, but one is, a, what is, one is where believers will pass through a fire, you know, and... and uh, we, First Corinthians 3. First yeah. Corinthians 3. Yeah. <laughs> um, pass through a fire of some sort where, where what we've done for the Lord will be tested, and that which is wood, hay, and stubble, burned and gone, um, and then that which was, was truly willing the good of the other. I talked a little bit about Jesus' scars remained, and somehow maybe the things were, we, when we loved correctly, when we really sacrificially loved someone, we might get a scar and that might remain somehow. So, I mean, there's a little allusion to that. But then the great white throne judgment is basically 
you know, what did you do with Christ? And if you rejected Christ, then that you have the phrases, depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah. Um, and so that's a different judgment that you guys can talk about. <laughs> I think um, something that's really, would be really easy to miss in talking about uh, the day of the Lord and his judgment is, is what a sweet relief his judgment is. Um, you know, when, you, when, you're, when your back's out of place, um, when you're six foot two, and that happens every once in a while. It's Dreaded. been happening since you were your hair is 15 six years old. Two oh, man, I remember I used, to, I used to wait tables, and at some point in time, they got rid of the bussers, and, they, and so that I was bussing tables all the time, and I was only 15, but my back would go out probably a couple times a year to the point where I couldn't get in and out of the car. Um, like without like excruciating pain. And when you, when your back is in that state and you go to the chiropractor, right. And your, your spine is subluxated, it's all out of place. And the chiropractor just, right. It's a little uncomfortable, but it is such a like, uh, like finally it's back where it belongs. And, and the reality is in creation is that God has always been meant to be the judge. I mean, literally the Bible opens up with the beginning of Genesis, right? And in, in Genesis, there's this theme that somehow we, we easily miss in, in, in the introductory um, chapters of, of the Bible, right? Where, you know, God is the one who says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, it's not good. Um, and, and, and so God is creating and judging. And then, you know, we turn the page and we see the woman see that the fruit is good to eat, right? And, and it's so interesting because even in that moment, I think we think of her like sinking her teeth in and that's the moment when sin enters the world. But something is awry when someone who's not God is doing the judging. Um, and, then, and then that theme carries throughout, right? The book of Judges is, A, called the book of Judges, um, but it has this heavy theme of, you know, everyone did was evil in the eyes of the Lord, everyone did was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then it gets really nasty when they're doing what's right in their own eyes, right? So all of creation and, and, and the way we're meant to interact with God and his creation is that he is the judge. And so when he comes to judge us, I, I think there, there's this part in our souls that there's this part in creation that just goes, finally the judge is there again. And, and I think of this, there's this song that I really love by a band called My Epic. Um, and, and the chorus, they, you know, it says, uh, you're the only one to fear. You're the only one who loves me as I am. You alone are my defender and you alone will be my judge. And I, and I think we, we cringe at the idea of judgment, but really I think we ought to have a sigh of relief at the idea of God finally judging. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I feel like there's, nothing more painful for people than when you see injustice. When you see something that you're like, I know that's wrong, or I know that person did something wrong and they're not gonna get in trouble. And like when that injustice sits for so long, it's so painful. And I've never really thought of it like that. Like, yeah, what a relief. The judgment will come and set everything right. That's beautiful. Daniel? I was just gonna say one of the other verses about judgment is uh, in Hebrews it says, it's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. And part of what's in the book of Hebrews is a description of Jesus doing the high priestly duties, going into a temple not made with human hands, like this is the big time, this is what the little temple pointed to, this is Jesus, the real high priest, passing through. He doesn't have to give sacrifice for his own sins because he doesn't have any, um, but then he's there with the Father in his presence, um, you know, after being the sacrifice, and it's a once-for-all sacrifice. Um, and you can kind of pick up in First John, it talks about, um, well, even going back a step further, 
there's this way that scripture has of saying what we do now in this life does matter. So we can't treat it like it doesn't matter. Um, I think it's Second Corinthians 5.10 says, all of us will give an answer for what we did, whether good or bad in the body. Um, so we kind of hold that in tension with, you know, we go to First John, it talks about what happens if we sin? Well, we actually have an advocate. There's Jesus there on our behalf, um, you know, calls him the paraclete. Uh, in it's funny because the book of John has the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. First John has Jesus as the paraclete, which is the one advocating for us. And it's in comparison to the book of, um, in the gospels where Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning out of heaven. Um, Satan is the accuser. He's like the prosecuting attorney has lost his spot. And who we have there is Jesus instead. So that if we sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. We, we have Jesus there before the Father advocating for us. So there's this tension of, yes, what you do in this life matters. If you do sin, you have someone there advocating for you, and Satan has lost his place to accuse in your life. Well, and as a follow-up to that, the, the judgment that happens afterward, there's the other side to it too, which is the reward side. Uh, which is, I feel like, a lot more mysterious when you're, lo when you're looking at the Bible. What is that reward that I'm going to carry? But that 1 Corinthians 3 says, you know, all the works that you did, you lay before the Lord. The fire comes, what you did with your finances, what you did with your time and your family and your church, and all those things, you're laying them before the Lord, and the fire comes down. And what you have left from the fire burning is that reward. But how do you wrap your head around that in terms of looking at that as a believer? What is that? Yeah, well, I think, I think judgment, we look at it as a negative. Mm. But if you get judged and you've passed, it's a, it's a, so the judgment isn't negative inherently. Yeah. The judgment is just a revealer. Yeah. And, and I think what you talk about with fire, and this is something I've thought about, and just go with me <laughs> on this. It's kind of nice to be up here to just talk, and everyone here doesn't get to say, well, what about this verse, or what about this? And then it just all unravels. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some people up here that probably kick our butts in some it's ways. All, it's all you um, know. But, uh, yeah, I'll just say everything I want, and no response. Um, but the idea of judgment and fire, I, I mean, I think you guys both alluded to that. There was a time where God judged the world with water. I mean, literally a flood completely cleansed the world of what was not found righteous. And, and then there was a promise, you know, the rainbow that said, I'll never do it this way again. And then when you read in Peter, though, God's like, but I have reserved it for fire. So like, <laughs> the next one's going to be fire, right? I mean, it's kind of funny, but, um, but the whole idea of fire being this purifier and fire being connected to the judgment and, and God's plan is to rid the world of evil, which is that great relief for all those who have experienced evil. Um, and, and then those who are hidden in Christ, though they were once evil, are now spared from that. And, and so when I, when I look at those judgments, I mean, obviously the lake of fire is an image Revelation gives us of hell, where the final, final thing that happens is the devil and all his angels and all those who rejected Christ are thrown into this lake of fire. That was not created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels, but those who rejected Christ find themselves there too. And fire is, is that reality. But then there's this other fire in Revelation that I just always think about. It's, it's Jesus's eyes, where it actually describes in Revelation chapter one that John was looking and he saw, you know, and he describes the hair of wool and all these things. But then his eyes were full of fire. And I don't know if I heard this 
or whatever, I just like this, um, that in some ways the judgment for a believer is it's pointed once, for, once to die and then judgment. That immediately when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the moment we take our last breath here, we go and we stand before Jesus. And it's not this elaborate kind of assembly line or like conveyor belt that we're passing through fire, but it's just this Peter's moment. Gate, you know, you got to stand in, in this, line. Yeah. In this moment, we look into the eyes of Jesus, these flames of fire, and the, and the judgment is complete. And in that moment, everything in our lives that, we re, that, that you know, passes through or whatever, that we know was done with selfish or vain conceit or something, it's all burned up, but, 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 we, but we weep. You know, the Bible doesn't say there's no tears in heaven. It says he will wipe away every tear. <laughs> so I, I think in that regard, I, I, I see this moment of the minute I'm done here, I stand before Jesus, and with those eyes of fire in just a moment, I get both the complete cleansing and washing, but also I get that just establishing all that is good. And, and, then, and then I think... I mean, this is my, my ideas. I think that we will weep for every moment that we wasted, every, everything that we did, or everything we did that we shouldn't, everything that we left undone. I think, I think we will weep, and then Jesus, you know, with those hands, with the scars in them, comes and wipes away those tears. That's, that's an idea. And I feel like we get little, little tastes of that, you know, like just worshipful moments where you're, where you're before the Lord and you start to see the things in your life in the right perspective. And you go, that thing that I've been working so hard at, it is a lot less important when I'm in the presence of the Lord. I feel like we get little tastes along the way. Yeah, Daniel. Just to follow up with talking about floodwaters and fire and judgment, like there's picture language in the Old Testament, don't quote me, but I think it's Isaiah 43 talking about though you pass through the waters, you won't be overwhelmed. Though you pass through the fires, you'll come out without even the smell of smoke on you basically. And it's kind of like we're protected through judgment. And and there is a reality that, you know, we will die if if we die before Jesus returns, we will die imperfect but it's when we see him that we become like him. And, and we wanna see as much of him as we possibly can in this life. And the more that we l stare into his face, you know, spiritually through practices, through prayer, reading scripture, the more we see him, the more we become like him. But when we fully see him face to face with our eyes is when we actually become all the way like him. I think uh, that actually reminds me of perhaps one of if not the most formative moments of my entire life. Um, uh, was a moment I think that I felt the presence of the Lord more significantly than, than any other moment. It was when I was in junior high. This guy was the high school pastor. Uh, we were uh, on a Mexico trip and we were out on the beach and just there kind of ended up being some impromptu worship out on the beach. And I remember just getting smashed by the presence of the Lord like I never have before or since. Um, and I remember weeping, just like full-blown like just, just no stop weeping. Um, and I remember just having in, in, in my heart, in my mind, this little vision of a, like, like a little meter, you know, like a little boop, boop, like, and, and, and the meter was just like, just a little like on that kind of first, not even on that first notch, and it was this big old meter. And I just remember, remember knowing that like, that is the fullness of the goodness of eternity with the Lord of, of heaven and the new heaven and the new earth of, of what will happen. And this right here is what I was experiencing in that moment 
which was more overwhelming than anything I've ever felt. Um, and uh, yeah, and that, that has for my whole life been an anchor that it, where I know no matter what, no matter what doubts are here or there or whatever, I go back to that moment and I can say, I know that in that moment on that beach in Rocky Point, it was more clear to me the reality of God and his goodness and his love and his promise of eternity it was more real than anything I ever, ever had and ever have experienced. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, I think those are the, the moments that are real clarifying for us when we're really in the presence of the Lord. And it's sweet. We always talk about the sweetness of the presence of God, but sometimes it's heavy, but it's heavy in such a beautiful way, you know. It's really clarifying. But you said something. I'm going to dovetail off of that. So that, <clears throat> that moment you die, you're before the Lord. Um, and we've talked about this up here. And the last time we were talking about heaven and hell, we had talked about, well, you know, there's a lot of language around heaven and hell, and maybe it's like this, and maybe it's like that. But we did feel the need at that point in that week to go, we do believe, though, that there is a heaven and there is a hell, um, just to be clear. And these days, I think that's a pretty important thing to be clear on. Um, but we were talking a little bit about the idea that really... In so, in so many ways, uh, it, people really struggle with, I think every believer struggles with this to, to some extent, but the post-mortem opportunity to accept Jesus, is, is that something uh, that you see as a viable biblical option on the table? I'll start with Alec. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because uh, people go, I mean, uh, Rob Bell's pivot book when he went from being, you know, a, an Orthodox Christian into probably maybe not so much, uh, was a book on this very topic. And he made a point, which is a valid point, which is that uh, there are a lot of people who have called themselves believers who have said for a long time that, yes, there is a postmortem dispensation of grace, and they make biblical arguments. Um, in a nutshell, I would say I think the weight of the body of Scripture does not point in that direction. Um, people aren't crazy for, for interpreting certain verses to say, oh, maybe after death, maybe the Lord does, you know, forgive people who had rejected him before. I, I don't see that as the case. And I would say this is definitely the moment where it becomes, a, uh, it becomes an obvious answer when we think about the practical implications of either direction, whether uh, do we only get, you know, between now and when we die to accept the Lord or reject him, or is there an opportunity afterwards? And I, and I would say, basically, if you're asking that question for you, you're just saying, how much not Jesus can I get before I finally decide to cash in at the end? Yes. Um, and, and I think if that's, I think you're missing out because Jesus has life and fullness for you right here and right now. And furthermore, I would say if there's any uncertainty, which at the very least there is uncertainty um, as, as to whether or not there, there might be postmortem dispensation of grace. But if there is any uncertainty, what a fool you would be to not devote your life to convincing the people, to, 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 to drawing the people you love away from that, that cliff face and saying, away from that edge and saying, look, I don't think that there is a postmodern dispensation of grace, but even if I'm 1% unsure, how about we just follow Jesus now and experience what he had? Because it's not just about pray a prayer, wait till I die, die, go to heaven. It's, it's actually engage in a relationship with God here and now and the kingdom of heaven is among us and at hand. And in addition to that, all of eternity. So, yeah, I think I think that's important. And, and I, the way I always said, I think I even said it in one of these a couple weeks ago, is I would I would like to believe that I will not be offended if God's grace does not extend as far as I expect it to. 
when the day of judgment comes. But I also don't think I'll be shocked if his grace extends further than I expect it to. So, Daniel, want to add anything to that? I'll give the range answer. Um, that this is something that throughout church history, there's been a range of responses to it. And for me personally, I know, um, like, one thing people have brought up is our picture of heaven and hell is more informed, more informed by Dante's Inferno and the legacy that that left than necessarily by the scriptural picture um, and a lot of the nuance that's in scripture. There are, there has been, you know, going back as far as Origen was a church father that was very much a universalist. Um, he's also um, condemned three centuries later, so um, they didn't, the quick and the dead, uh, all the people around him were the slow, so it was okay. Um, but there's always been a thread in church history, um, and it's not just, you know, universalism on one side and hell on the other side. There's things like annihilationism, where it's the view that basically for those who reject God, they just cease to exist, and death means dead, not eternal conscious torment. Um, and I agree with what Alec is saying that, you know, if the question is how much can I get away with or how little Jesus can I do in this life, you're, you're asking the wrong question um, and you haven't seen the beauty of the gospel and it hasn't captured your heart yet. Um, but then there is another question. Tell me about this character of the God you want me to worship. What is he like? And you know, I don't know the answers for what it will look like in the end, but like Abraham, will not the God of the earth do right? And that you can trust his character is good and he knows what he's doing. Um, and so there's, you know, basically you could, there's a whole set of universalist verses that you can go through and pick out. And there are a lot of verses that would, if you interpretively put more weight on those, you would land in a position of either universalism, uh, annihilation, annihil annihilation is possible. Uh, for me, I do think what um, kind of uh, is important is that God gives us the agency of choice and so for that reason, I probably would not fall into the camp of universalism. He allows us the dignity of having a choice, being uh, personal agents, if you will, or having agency and allowing us to choose, um, that he has the offer of grace for us. And if we say no, and I said this last time, you know, C.S. Lewis uses the, um, basically, you know, eternity with Jesus is filled with people who have said, thy will be done, and hell is filled with the people that God says to them, thy will be done. Dan, you're not probably not in the camp of a universalist. You're not in the camp. I, I know that. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tough question because again, it's, it's. I think one of those next layer things where the the clear, consistent thought throughout the last two millennia of the of of the followers of Christ is is definitely that there is <clears throat> there is there is judgment, there is wrath. There is hell, there is lake of fire, all of those things. But in that, you know, there, there, are, there are scriptures and there are hopes that we try and soften some of these things. And, it, and I think it's a little tricky because it happens and it's happening in our world today, especially in regards to sexuality and things where, where based on some of the things we feel, based on the, some of the things that we're experiencing in relationship, we would like for there to be less clarity and strength and intensity on some things. And so then we start to play with those things. And again, I'm not saying that's, that's 
that's all bad. I mean, to some extent, we can get it wrong. And there are times where Christians have been so locked in on something that, I mean, for instance, flat earth, right? Like, no, I think we can, we can, we can wiggle out of this thing a little bit. There's enough evidence where we can move those things. But, um, but I, think, I think that's what I've seen. That's, that, to me, is more of what's happening in that regard, is I would love for there to be everybody eventually makes it. I mean, I would love that. And I think God's grace, what I understand of that, is large enough for something like that. However, there's another aspect to God, which is judge, which is, you know, wrath, which is these other things. And so I feel like there's a little discounting of that. And when I look at what Jesus taught, I mean, Jesus wasn't ashamed or wasn't shy at all about um, talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth and fire that isn't quenched and the worm that doesn't die, which is... All, all figurative language, but also even when he kind of depicts Abraham's bosom or whatever, there's this chasm. And even though Lazarus and, and the rich man was saying, please, is there anything that can be done? And Abraham's like, no, man, it's, it's done. There's nothing that can happen at this point. Um, so, I, so I guess that's, that's where I would be. But that doesn't mean I haven't experienced some very compelling, interesting things from C.S. Lewis, from other people, that that make me think, hmm, maybe. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stick on on the ground that that I know is real good and 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 all of that. So yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. But. I was gonna say um, when my wife and I were in YWAM, our leader was a guy named Danny Layman, uh, who's come to Living Streams before and he's taught. And Danny Layman's an unbelievable guy. He's got like a well, last I checked, he had a third of the New Testament memorized. But I I'm sure it's more than that now. Um, he is just this walking encyclopedia of biblical knowledge. And uh, we're serving at this, this place where we're preaching the gospel, we're going, we're spreading the gospel to all the nations. Like, this is the thrust of YWAM. And somebody, after Danny had given some sort of message, he, he was sitting down and, and somebody came up to him and said, so Danny, do you believe that people will have the opportunity to accept Jesus after they die? And I expected Danny to be like, absolutely not because of X, Y, and Z. And he, does, he did say, there's no other name under heaven and earth by which anyone is saved but Jesus. We know that. That's safe ground for us to land on. But he said, you know, he, he laid out all these verses. He said, there's some verses that give us a little bit of hope or a little bit of thought that potentially there could be a decision point afterward. He said, but I have dedicated my life to telling people about Jesus because I'm assuming that that's not the case. And he said, and if I get to heaven and, and that was the case, I go, okay, great. I was pleasantly surprised, but he, he's, he's living his life with that, with that sort of um, conviction of heart to say, I am going to tell the people in, in my life about Jesus, assuming there's going to be a big repercussion if they don't accept him. And I think for us as believers, this, this is something that informs what we do. This is vitally important. Um, and even for me, vulnerably, there... Um, my, my grandma was someone who was vehemently against Jesus, and I had talked to her about Jesus many, many times in, in the years that I knew her. And there were so many nights I was praying, I was like, okay, this is the night. And she was very hard-hearted, and every time I thought I had a great argument, she'd be like, you're not, you know, you're not convincing me. And um, a couple months ago, she was on her deathbed, and... I felt like the Lord told me, I want you to go share the gospel again with her. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> She's already said no so many times. 
And it was literally this idea, though, that pushed me from not wanting to to pushing myself to doing it. Because I said, I don't know if she's going to have another opportunity. And I'm not going to risk my grandma's life on a gamble like that. And I, I text my, my sister. I said, will you be my backup? I'm going to go preach the gospel to, to my grandma again. And we went there. I said, you know, Grandma, do you, do you know, know about Jesus? And she said, I do, but I haven't been, you know. And long story short, at the end of this long conversation, she accepted Jesus. And she prayed the sinner's prayer, and it was beautiful. But I just, I, again, this is where theology really does impact. Like, what we think about eternity really does impact what we do here. And if I, and if I get to heaven and I find out she could have had an opportunity afterward, I'm not going to go, dang it, I should have just not done it. No, I'm glad I did it anyway. It's, it feels like the safe place to default. So Yeah, and I, I would just add, um, and even as you tell that story, right, like it, it gets me because this is, a, this is a theological question and an eschatological question, but really it's a relational question. Um, the minute you have someone you love who's rejected Jesus... Um, and that's what we're really asking when we ask that. I think maybe some people are immature enough that they're asking, like, how much can, can I just get away with it all and then change my mind after? But I think for the most part, we're asking because we're thinking, I love this person. And they've rejected Jesus. And I think of the people, I mean, my own siblings have turned their back on the Lord. And, um, and it grieves me. And I remember a couple months ago, um, actually, I think around the same time that this was happening for you and you preached that, uh, t- told that story with a little bit less detail, um, and it, uh, it really got me, but I, I remember I was driving in my car and I was just thinking and grieving over my siblings and how much I love them and, um, and grieving over the possibility that maybe I won't spend eternity with them, you know? And I felt like the Lord just said, is it enough for you that I love them more than you do? Um, and that really was, because I know that he's doing everything. I mean, he literally died for them. You know, and I think that that's, and that's one of the verses that people go to with that universal is he died for the sins of the whole world. And, and I would take that to mean he died for, for everybody's sins. But to Dan's point, um, that doesn't mean people take advantage of that. doesn't mean people take hold of it. But I know that he loves them. And I know that he loves our loved ones more than we do. That our love for them comes from him. And we just have a splashing out of that. And so it's like, if he, and then when Jesus tells stories about, you know, finding the lost ones, right? Like leaving the 99, going for the one, the widow tearing up her entire house, right? The prodigal son and, and the father and how do you go, you know, like it just tearing, like I just had this vision of God tearing all of creation and history apart, trying to find that one lost coin, that one lost soul, trying to find my brother and my sister and our loved ones. And so I think that's got to be enough for me. And I, and I would say, too, on the other side, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't shy me away from comforting or having at least the, the question of we don't know what's in somebody's heart toward the end. I mean, most of the time we don't know what's even in our own heart, <laughs> let alone what's in somebody else's heart. And there is that sort of, for me, I'm going, I think for the life of the believer, our job is to continually put the gospel in front of people that we love. It's their choice. And we have no idea what choice they make, you know, toward the, toward the end of their life in a lot of ways. So... Um, yeah, not, not to be a little weird here, but yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about the word assurance. So we have assurance in Christ, a guarantee. And so if we start playing around with after death, there's the chance that I could turn towards Christ. Why not turn away from Christ? I mean, I, like, obviously, why are you going to say that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I just think in some ways 
we're, we're playing with things that we, we should just stick with what we know and some of that, but I, I don't know. And the, the assurance is uh, in short supply in the world around us. <laughs> There's all sorts of places to go to be very confused and hear a lot of gray area. To have the assurance of faith is it's beautiful. We should camp there. Yeah, I think it's just worth even harmonizing with that to say, even though we're trying to poke into the nuance of this, I think across the board on, the, on, on this panel, you know, we would say we, we really do, but although we recognize maybe there's a little, the truth is we all stand fairly firmly in, in the belief that no, no post-mortem dispensation of grace. Jesus has done quite a bit pre-mortem for us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's some key anchor points for us that we go, well, in all the question marks, these are places we could camp on and we could rely on. And, and I think we do everything that we can to tell people about Jesus and get them to that point. Which brings us to our last question, which I think, and the, the thing that you said, and this is where I think, again, eschatology, it could feel so academic and so... You, like, like, you know, trying to nail jello to the wall. But really, we just saw, even with the last question, this really does matter in the way that we live our life. There is something about eschatology that really does inform the way that we live. And a lot of times it pushes us, it, it, it convicts us, um, but it encourages us as well. And you had said something about, I can't remember what verse it was, in, in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians maybe saying that it's the, the encouragement. Encourage one another with these words, is what you said. Um, as you're looking at the, the end days, are, are there verses for you, key, key pieces of scripture that you're like, I camp on here when I'm looking for hope beyond this life? Daniel Riccio, oh. I'll just call you up. Um, all of them. <laughs> Is that too cheating? Um, book Genesis? Yeah, no. I, I know the, the one you're quoting, David had referenced it in First Thessalonians about um, we grieve, but not as those without hope, because we know we're going to see these people again. And so it doesn't eliminate that in this life, we'll go through tribulation, we'll go through pain. Um, we're going to grieve. It's healthy. It's right to grieve, but we don't have to grieve like those who don't have hope. And so it's not that because we're going to escape this world eventually that we don't engage in this world and we don't care. It's actually that we've been given resource to go through the hardships of this world in a way that the world hadn't seen until Jesus because he's the one that came into it, entered into our pain, our suffering, um, took the worst that death could blow, the, the worst blow that death, you know, that sin could give, which was death, you know, and it wasn't his sin, it was our sin, and that he was victorious over that, which shows us that, you know, and the promise of scripture is that we're going to follow Jesus uh, through death and out the other side, that we won't just be resuscitated, but that we will be resurrected with him as well, that in Christ, we're all going to be raised up. Um, and really, 1 Corinthians 15 as a chapter just has such a great description of all of that, that we're, you know, we're sown in, you know, corruptible, we're raised up incorruptible, that when we're raised up, that it'll no longer be with the shackles of, um, you know, a body of sin and death and corruptibility that, that we're going to be transformed in the blink of an eye. Uh, and so that's a hope that we lean into, that we live into, um, you know, that uh, that's probably one place I'd go. It's good. It's good. I, I want to read them because I just love these verses so much. So in Acts chapter 3, actually, Peter's preaching 
um, and part of what he says is repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the, his holy prophets. So just that idea that Jesus is just sitting there, you know, seated at the right hand of the Father. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. And there's coming a day where, like Tim Keller said, every, every sad thing will come untrue. But then, but then in addition to that, in 1 Thessalonians 2, this is actually 2 Thessalonians 2. I wrote 1 Thessalonians, but um, this verse is just so Kung Fu Panda. Um, it says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So it's not even like a battle. It's just like Jesus just shows up and somehow the splendor coming off of him goes and does the battle and just like deals with everything, which if you've seen Kung Fu Panda, that's, that's like exactly what he dreams of. Is this just awesomeness does all the fighting for him. Um, but I just, I just, I mean, those two verses... Like, at the end of the day, God's going to restore everything. And there, and there literally is an appointed moment for that. And we're, you know, hurling through space towards it. And it's hurling through space towards us. And, and there's this moment where that is going to happen, where God restores everything. And then to just see that moment where Jesus, you know, is no longer the lamb having been slain, but he's, he's that triumphant, you know, king of kings and lord of lords. And he comes, and it's just a moment. It's a twinkling. It's just done. So, Alec. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just it's a composite of a number of different verses. But, uh, and I and I say this often when I'm preaching, if we're hitting in this any anywhere, but just just the reality that you know we have the promises that he'll come and he'll make every 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 mountain high and every valley low, uh, which I think really just is speaking so much to justice and that he'll wipe away every tear and say, "Behold, I make all things new." Um, but I, I, I wanted to just squeeze in one last thought, just off of what uh, Dan was saying too about like, you know, uh, resurrection, not resuscitation. And I think that's that is so key, right? And I think it's so important for us to remember that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And actually this, this is eschatology that really is at, at the root of, of satisfying theodicy, right? So theodicy is, is that fancy, you know, Bible word that means like dealing with the problem of evil. How is God still good uh, in, in light of all of this? Um, and I think for me, key to understanding that, key to wrapping my mind and my heart around how God is still good in the midst of all of this brokenness and death is that you and I have not tasted of resurrection yet, right? We've tasted of healing uh, maybe even some miraculous healing to some extent. So when we experience pain and death and the really deep, dark, nasty, disgusting, traumatic things that we experience in life, it, and we think, well, yeah, but on the back end of that, even when you've healed, even when it's been redeemed, like it's still there in a way that makes it not okay. Maybe maybe something good has come out of it, but, but none of us have experienced resurrection. 
Um, and, I, and I often talk about, you know, the story of like Martha and Jesus right before Lazarus, you know, is, is resurrected. And she's just saying, Lord, if you had been here and she's, you can hear the weeping and the accusation and the belief in him all at the same time. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then, and, and, and just all of that pain and frustration. And then a few hours later, you know, you imagine she's dancing with her brother, right? And the pain that she was feeling when she was talking with Jesus a few hours ago has now turned into joy and gladness. Um, and, and, it's, and it's not, it's not disappeared. It's been transformed by resurrection life, not by healing. She didn't heal like we all have when we've lost someone. She didn't deal with it. She didn't move forward from it. The Lord didn't just redeem it and do something beautiful out of it. He, he resurrected her brother, and that is a microcosm of what you and I are experiencing. So all the pain, all the death, all the destruction, all the trauma, all the evil we've experienced, one day we will experience resurrection life, not healing. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with how God is still good. We haven't tasted it. That's really good. And I think that is a great place for us to wrap up. Uh, David, you want to pray, pray for us this yeah. evening? That'd be great. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have good plans and uh, they've never been in jeopardy, even for a moment. And Lord, we ask that, that you really would help us to see your kingdom come and your will be done right here um, in Phoenix. I thank you for each person that's here and um, they've taken this time and I pray that you would somehow really use it to, to build something beautiful in their life and uh, to strengthen them and encourage them and comfort them and help them be more steadfast. And, and Lord, we do pray for those that we know who don't, don't have your assurance, that, that haven't been hidden in you. Um, Jesus, I pray that you really would turn their hearts. Um, you, would, you would help them to see, um, help them to hear, um, and uh, help them to know you, Lord. Please, Lord, and if, you, if there's anything we can do, help us to do it, but we know it's your work, and so we ask that you really would. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's hear for the panel tonight. A couple of quick things. This is our last credo, so next Wednesday night, if you come here, you're going to be really lonely, um, so not doing any more of those, but if you ask any questions, and especially those of you that are listening to the podcast uh, a little bit later, we were asked a lot of questions some of them were in line with what we were preaching. Some of them were not. Uh, so we have been talking about it, and Alec and I have been having a lot of conversation. Our commitment is we are going to come around those questions, and we're going to answer them, but most likely in podcast form. Uh, so just keep an eye on our social media and all that stuff for all that information. But thank you so much for being here, and have a great evening. <laughs>